When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. How do you create priorities and how do you figure out where to put what? So we, we actually had lots of success. We got people to call their mothers and uh, drink water and exercise. And reading is incredible. You talk to people about reading and people say, I haven't read. And then you say, you know what? Read 15 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. Let's just put it in your calendar. Read 15 minutes a day. It helps you fall asleep better. And you say you want to read. It's amazing what you could do in 15 minutes a day if you do it. If you do it, yeah. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with behavioral economist and best-selling author, Dan Ariely. You should listen to this episode if you wanna learn how our brains make decisions and more importantly, why we decide the things we do, how we're never truly rational, unbiased, or impartial, even if it's our job to do just that. We'll also see what time it is to best go before a judge and why transparency in our lives can often backfire. And last but not least, how motivation works, how it doesn't work, and how we can use our own psychology against ourselves. So enjoy this one with Dan Ariely. And by the way, if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the AOC Toolbox, where we discuss things like body language and nonverbal communication. We also discuss persuasion, networking, negotiation, mentorship, and everything else we teach here at The Art of Charm. If you're in the US, just text CHARMED to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444, also at theartofcharm.com slash podcast, you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. All right, here's Dan Ariely. This is something with my behavior, and I don't know if it's all humans, where if something goes wrong in the morning, it takes a lot of effort for me to, to get unflustered later on in the day. So if I wake up, like I did this morning at 4.45 a.m. for a radio appearance, and then I try to go back to sleep, that's the cardinal mistake. Once I try to go back to sleep, if that doesn't work, I end up stressing about not being able to sleep and then that'll carry through and then going into traffic and everything. It's just like this morning I woke up and Jen's like, are you okay? And I'm like, it's just like one thing after another. I feel like there's a skill, especially in a business that you have to have, which I am currently developing, where you are able to unfluster yourself very, very quickly. Otherwise, you'll just get washed down the drain with every little problem that pops up. Yeah, and there's a couple of versions of the story that you could have that have different mechanisms. So one is falling asleep, right? What happens if you wake up and you try to fall asleep? And there's actually really interesting research showing that when people try to fall asleep, they interpret the difficulty (laughs) as an indication that something is wrong. Oh, really? So all of a sudden, it's not just that you fall asleep. You say, oh, why can't I fall asleep? And these thoughts are making it harder and harder to fall asleep. But this idea of resetting the idea of resetting in general is very, very important, right? So, and resetting can be in lots of scales. So there's this notion called the what the hell effect. 
What the hell effect? What the hell effect. And people mostly know these effects from dieting, right? That you're on a diet, you're on a strict diet, and then you eat a muffin. And you oh, say to I yourself, yeah. I'm not on a diet. I might as well have a burger and fries right. and a milkshake for lunch and then a chocolate cake for dinner. And the notion is that we view ourselves in a binary way. We're either good or bad. And if you're 92% good, you can still think of yourself as a good category. Right. But if you're 78% good, is it really worth effort to move to 92%? Right. right. So, yeah. so basically what happened is that as long as we're not on a good side, we say what the hell because we don't enjoy the middle ground. The middle ground is not helping us define who we are. So we find this in dishonesty, that when people start behaving badly, continuing is very easy. Uh, we find it in dieting. We find it in failing in all kinds of ways. And, you know, there are these religious mechanisms that get you to restart things. I think about the Catholic confession. Oh, yeah, there you go. What's, what's the logic of the Catholic confession? Clean slate. That's right. You could say it's a crazy mechanism, right? Because if you know that you can sin and get absolved, what should you do? <laughs> right. Just go for it. And not only that, just go for it just before confession, right? right. Because you minimize yeah. time in purgatory, right? The only thing, if the mindset was the only thing I, I want to do is not to die without confession, still on the way to confession, you set up. But of course, that's not how confession works. Confession works by restarting a new page. And we do this at night, right? Where each day is a new day with calories, right? Nature doesn't count calories by the day. That if you ate a muffin in the morning, you right. know, whatever you do in the afternoon is, is still in the same category. But that's why New Year is an important thing. Oh, so yeah. There's all these questions of how do we reset it? In, in Judaism, there's the Day of Atonement. So that's all on the dishonesty side. But I think it's a much more general thing that if you're in a rut, what can you do to reset? And if you... You just say, let me reset. I don't think that's going to yeah. that's going to work. You need some kind of ritual, some kind of statement, and then try something different. So if I were you, yeah, and you kind of early in the morning discover that you're in a rut, do something different. Go for a run, do 10 push-ups. I usually work out. Yeah, I usually work out if it's in the middle of the day. If it's 8 p.m., I just go, all right, a lot of things are going wrong today. They don't need to be solved today. I can just go to bed early. And then I'll get up early the next day and I'll have more time and a clean slate to right. take care of everything. Yeah. Clean slate is interesting. And, you know, we've done some experiments on this, on dishonesty in particular, when we get people to cheat and then we change how they cheat and we give them a chance to confess. And it turns out that the two elements of confession of the admitting what you've done wrong and asking for forgiveness are both crucial. You need both of them, hmm. right? So you say, here's what I did wrong. Sorry, let me start fresh. Those help. And... And we don't have enough of those mechanisms in, in civic society, right? We don't. Why do you think that is? Because I don't think we have the intuition of the separation of the self. I mean, we have some of that intuition around New Year resolution. Sure. But we don't have enough of that intuition that says, I can put a stop and say my past self is not an indication necessarily of who I'm going to be. We have a, I think the intuition is that we are a much more continuous self. And if we understood that we can take these somehow artificial gaps and restart, we would use it more often. Yeah, it seems like a trick I should have learned decades ago that when I'm having an off day, work out and reset. Or I'd like to say I don't have off days that often, but I do work from home, so I'm able to recover or an off day seems a little bit less of a lull because I'm not in front of a lot of people until I do something like this. And then you see your mistakes are highlighted kind of even for yourself because Whereas if something goes wrong and no one's around and I can fix it quietly, it doesn't seem like a big problem. 
when you're late for your own thing and nobody knows, no big deal. When you're late and people go, look, man, I got crap to do today. What's your problem? Then you go, okay, maybe I need to get it back together. Yep. It becomes harder. By the way, it's not just about other people observing. It's about awareness more generally. So we find, for example, that if people work in front of a mirror, <laughs> they are less dishonest. We find yeah. that if you have, uh, this was an experiment that was done in England where they had kind of an honor coffee bar. Ah, uh, okay. You so had, you pay when, on your own. You pay on your own to tell you what the amount is. And they changed the pictures above the money collection box. Uh, okay. And sometimes it was a picture of eyes and sometimes a picture of flowers. And people left three times more money when it was a picture of eyes. Now, when you see a picture of eyes, you don't think to yourself, oh, somebody's looking. Right. right. You don't confuse that this is a camera or something like that. But there is an awareness of the outside perspective. You all of a sudden become a bit more aware to yourself. Think about walking in front of a big display window where you can actually see your shadow or a reflection of yourself. There's an increased awareness of ourselves and that get us to behave very differently. So huh. actually, lots of behaviors, it's as if we're turning a slightly blind eye to our own behavior, right? You ask people, how healthy were you? What have you done? We kind of delude ourselves very quickly that we are much nicer and sure. healthier. I mean, story of everybody's life, right? That's right. How did you eat last week? Oh, it was pretty healthy. Uh, well, I'm, okay, I went to McDonald's like three times. I, well, I drank, but that was the weekend. So that doesn't really count in my answer. And there's all kinds of things like that. that That's right. And, and the moment you have kind of the outside perspective, your, your accountability increases yeah. a little bit and uh, people behave better. Look at undergrads. Uh, we did some studies on productivity. Undergrads rarely study in the dorm room. They go to the library sure. or they go to somewhere public. Why? Because they want to meet girls, but well. there's probably another reason. <laughs> So one is, of course, they think they'll stay in the room, they'll just go to sleep. Yeah, that's accurate. But they also want to have the feeling that somebody might look at their screen. So if nobody is looking, they can spend the whole day Facebook, YouTube, and so on. But if they're in the library, they have high responsibility to other people around. Somebody could pass by, they would feel that they're wasting their time. And that actually helps them kind of adhere to the commitment to to study at least a little bit. I can see that. I mean, I was a much better student in law school than I was in undergrad. And I'll tell you, working in the quiet reading room where it looks like I went to Michigan, so it's like bookshelves and it's a stone room and everyone's quiet. And everyone's taken it pretty seriously. And they don't let just anybody in there. You have to be a certified, you know, bar accredited attorney or a, a student at that law school, you know, undergrads, et cetera. So you go into this area where it's like the ritual is quiet, study, yeah. get it done. So if you're there, you're playing poker, there were those guys that were just so socially inept that even sitting in a place like that where you're supposed to be working, it just it lost all of its effect after a while. Yeah. But I'll tell you, when I went in there, I kind of wanted to get out of there. And so because it was intense, and so I got my studying done and I got out of there. Because otherwise it was... And, and there is the question of what is the environment tells us that our role should be? Sure, yeah. And we accept that role and then we act in the consequence of that. And which is why it's so hard. I mean, you said you work at home. Sometimes it's very hard to work from home oh, because yeah. there's this oh, mixture yeah. of roles. Uh, the environment basically reminds us about what our role is and the environment gives us all kinds of different oh, cues. Yeah. It's time to do the laundry, <laughs> make lunch make another lunch. <laughs> yes, make a little snack. The environment of working from home took me years to be able to work effectively from home. I would say six years ago, five years ago, 
I would get started around 2 p.m. because it was hard to get out of bed because there was nobody waiting for you. And then you'd get up and you'd go to the gym and then you'd make some food and then you're kind of tired and then you want to make some calls. And then you look for the easiest thing because you haven't planned out your day or you'd have gotten up early and gotten something done. So you just start with the easy activity and then it's five o'clock and, you know, you go, ah, I can't start that big project thing now. It's too late in the day. I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah. By the way, this problem is not just limited to 2 p.m. and 5 p.m. If you think about the things we have to do, we have a lot of small tasks that we just have to do. And what's interesting is they give us a bizarre sense of reward because <laughs> they, it makes us feel as if we're making progress. Sure. And uh, the official name for this is structured procrastination. Oh, perfect. I have that. Yeah. I do that and, well. <laughs> and, and, and basically, kind of the, the prototype for this is making to-do lists, right? You yes. make a to-do list and item number one is make a to-do list. Yes. And you cross it out. You write things and you cross them out. And you haven't done that much. In fact, right. you've taken time away from making real progress and just made the list. And by the way, there's some good list. The process of doing small things and checking them off gives us a sense as if we're making progress. Where the hard things are very bizarre because they don't give us a sense of the sense of progress is very elusive. Like it's, imagine it's blunted whole, by that struggle that you'd go through to get it done. Yeah. Right. And so first of all, it's, it's a long term, right? You could spend the whole day and you can say, you, you come home and your significant eye said, what did you do? You say, honey, today I was thinking the whole day. I thought that's your job. Good, nothing good came out, but right. I was thinking, you know, made all kinds of mistakes. Maybe I'm thinking a little bit better now, but you don't feel like it was a useful day. No. Whereas you say, I got to inbox zero. Oh my goodness. Now, now it's an, an achievement. Yeah, pat yourself on the back and, and do this. There's another bizarre thing about progress, which I kind of worry a little bit about digital tools. You know, I wrote a few books and I think that for every book, I maybe edited it. I'm not talking about writing, maybe edited it 50 times, right? Where you read it again and rethink about it and change some things and just edit and edit and edit. The whole and, thing 50 times. Yeah, about. That sounds like an absolutely horrendous amount of work. It's a lot of work, but it's, it's actually quite pleasurable. Over time, I, I think I write slower and I enjoy it more. That's great. And it's a little bit like, for me, it's a little bit like, I'm not such a good writer, but I, it's a little bit like wine where I, I think about sentences and now if you have a deadline and right. that's a different story, but, but if you're just writing, it's a very wonderful activity. But anyway, the first book for Predictably Rational, you know, I had this version of it that took me a long time and I look at it and I had the thought of like, why didn't I just write this version to start? <laughs> like, you know, why did we have all the other versions? Like, yeah. why can't I read? Now, imagine you wrote everything on hard copy. You would have kind of a sense of your progression. Oh, you mean like you're handwriting it and then you re-handwrite it or let's you say, chisel let's it say you did. Stone. I'm not recommending it, yeah, but, no, but let's like... say you did. Let's say you did. <laughs> but you had a hard copy of all the versions. You would probably understand some of the progress in your own thinking. Sure. You would say, oh, I really thought about that example and later on I understood something else and I changed it and so on. But in a digital world, when we just write on top of other things and there's no history right. for the progress of thought, it's much easier to say, I should have started here. Sure. Yeah. Uh, write this because you don't actually understand the journey of thinking. And I think it's one of the problems is that we don't understand how much time thinking takes and how the pure effort and the pure focusing and trying to resolve a problem and think about all the angles actually get you somewhere. Now, sometimes you go in a direction, discover it was just a waste of time, mm -hmm. and, but you come back and you refine your thinking. It's an activity that gives you very little short-term reward. Sure, yeah. It's incredibly valuable, but if you say, 
what would get me to think at the end of the day that I had a productive day? If I thought for four more hours or answered email for four more hours. However, what would make you happier at the end of the month, year, or at the end of your life? 10 books or zero inbox. Right? <laughs> That's right. When you get to your deathbed, you could say, I had 278 days of zero inbox yes. in my lifetime. <laughs> what an achievement. So we do the urgent. And it's actually a very sad thing. And I think there's something about the way, the electronic way in which the world is progressing, that we have more of those things that give us the, the short dopamine hit. Yeah. I got something. I got something. I have a feeling that on Monday morning, there's a huge group of people who show up to work don't really feel like doing anything. Work just seems too daunting. So instead, they email me. <laughs> they email you? Yeah. You know, what can I do to feel like I've done some work? Sure. It's not just me, of course. But we do this make work that give us a sense of progress without delving to the things that actually give us long-term satisfaction. I agree with that 100%. I see this a lot, especially, like you said, with people who decide to email you. I do see this a lot because we run live training programs in Los Angeles, and a lot of times people will write in and they'll say, I'm really thinking about doing this live training program in Los Angeles. I really want to come out and meet all you guys and get all these different nonverbal communication skills that we teach at The Art of Charm handled. And I go, great, let's do that. So I say, send me your phone number and I'll put you in touch with Jen or whoever, Brock or whoever's answering the calls and getting people registered for the programs that week. And sometimes they'll send me their number and then after that, they get all the information and they go, yeah, yeah, it's great. I'm just gonna plan it all out. And 80% of those people, you never hear from them again. And it took me forever to figure that out. Was it our materials? Was it the pricing? Was it the distance? And sure, there's some people who just can't travel, they don't want to or whatever. But the majority of the people they felt like since they asked for the information, they got the information, they laid out all the information, it's on their computer, it's saved, they already reached out and they emailed me, they already took the first five steps in their mind. And so they'll happily put it on the back burner, tuck it away in a drawer, and it's really, really frustrating. And we get a lot of guys who come through years later that say, I don't know why this took me so long. And, and the answer, in my opinion, is, well, because you thought you were doing something the whole time. It just wasn't anything important. It was like washing the car, putting gas in the car, inflating all the tires on the car, and then going back in your living room, flipping on the TV and going, why am I not at work yet? I need to go to work. Well, I already did the other stuff. The car's ready. I can do that whenever I want. So you're basically resting on your laurels. Resting you're, on your you're, laurels. You're kind of saying, this thing has 10 steps. The last one is... A big one, right. but let's just call them 10 steps. Yeah. And I've done five out of 10. Sure. I'm, I'm basically an expert already. The, the problem is when your laurels are made out of crappy tinsel and plastic and you're supposed to do something ironclad, you're in trouble if you're resting on those laurels. Yep. There's another thing which is called implementation intention, if you know, if you know the term. No, right? I never heard that. Implementation intention is the idea that we have very fuzzy plans for life. And we make concrete plans only in very specific cases or only when we get close to the event. Hmm. So let's say where you want to go on vacation next summer. And I said, what would you need to go to plan your vacation? And you would say, you know, I'll have to decide where to go and get a flight ticket. It will be at that level. Right. Okay. Two days before the event, you will think about very specific things. You will think about immunization and passports, who is going to take care <laughs> of your dog and who will water the plant. Right. Long term in advance, we have these very, very fuzzy plans that don't actually help us make any progress. And the plans get consolidated only when we get very close to the event. One experiment we did was this was in a 
local supermarket that was selling kind of sandwiches and drinks for lunch. So it was a supermarket, but lunch activity was mostly people coming to buy a sandwich and a drink. And people on average were spending $6. And we gave people a coupon that said, spend $8, get a dollar off. Okay. And what happened? Basically, we got lots of people to spend $8, right? Valuable. There were some people, we gave them a coupon that said, spend $4 or more, get a dollar off. You know what happened to those people? They spend less. Why? They could have spent six and get a dollar off, but the four dollar kind of got them to think that they should try and aim for, for four dollars. I see. And they did. But here's the interesting thing. This coupon of saying spend eight dollars, get a dollar off. Some people got it outside of the store, 12 feet before they entered the store. And some people got it once they entered the store. Hmm. What happened? The effect of the coupon was higher for people who got it outside of the store. Because outside of the store, they had very fuzzy plans about what they were going to get. They knew they were going to get a sandwich and a drink, but which sandwich and which drink could change? They hadn't thought about it They yet. hadn't thought about it. So they got a, a coupon that says, spend $8, get a dollar off. They said, oh, let's spend $8. And then when they got to the counter, that was their starting point. Once people entered the store, they already got concrete plans of what they wanted to mm. do. And they already had a specific sandwich and a specific drink in mind. And then when you give them a coupon, it doesn't change their behavior in the same way. Huh. So a big part of it is to think about what are our concrete plans for acting? Acting doesn't come about by having very general plans of what to do in life. Action comes from having concrete plans and even putting it into your calendar and say, when are you going to do it? The question is, what kind of things cause us to create concrete plans? Sometimes it's the closeness of the event in time, like you get close to the sandwich counter, you know, you need to pick right, you one up. Time's ticking. But in your case, if you have some long-term goal, you might do the easy things because it gives you a short-term satisfaction as if you're making progress. Mm -hmm. But the things that are more difficult, you never get them to be concrete. There's no urgency to put them on the agenda, so they never get executed. Right. That's why people have to-do lists that have things on them that say, write book yes. at the top. And it's been there for three years and it's never getting checked up. Even page one doesn't say yeah. You know you're doing structured procrastination well when you're putting things on your checklist, your to-do list, that you've already done just so that you can <laughs> yeah. cross them out. That's on right. There. Th then you're a master. Then yeah. you got the, the PhD in structured procrastination. At one point, I started doing things like that. And then I thought, okay, this is objectively not helpful at all. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, 
the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Now, back to the show. I figured out that the number one productivity tool for me personally and for most people that's underutilized is the calendar because we always think we need these reminders and these Pomodoro timer 20 second bursts of work but if you don't know the day before or the 20 day seconds? Of, yeah or 20 <laughs> minutes or whatever it is it depends how intense your work is that's the workout the 20 second tabata timer but if you're doing the 20 minutes of work as hard as you can but you don't know what you're going to do you're in trouble and honestly i've had people who come learn from us or, or can work for the art of charm they're not as productive as they want to be and they think they need all this we call it productivity porn where it's like the latest app that gets you to do something 12 seconds faster what you really need is a calendar and then when you have all those things structured in there you can also put the big things on the calendar so that they get done and everything else that's smaller just fills in around it and you just make those appointments and those gym memberships and everything that you've got in there is equally important so you don't skip them but it's a lot easier said than done because once you have that calendar you're faced with the accountability that you slept over that 8 a.m. time slot where you were going to study Chinese. You know, you slept through that and now you know that. It's harder to backwards rationalize that that was okay. Yeah, and the calendar has all kinds of challenges. I think the calendar is a very, it's actually a wonderful but also a very misguided tool. You know, the calendar was designed for coordination with other people. So what do we have? We have, it's based on time and at 3 p.m. you're going to meet somebody for this kind of meeting and it, it's really good for that. But if you think about something like working on a book, yes, we can do a hack. We can say every day from 9 to 11, I'll do sure. this book. But shouldn't some days be from 8.30 to 11? And you right. know, we should, we should, and sometimes in the evenings and, and so on. The problem is that there's a lot of things that are not easily written down in the correct time on the calendar. If you have a task that might take a thousand hours, there's no natural way to put it on the calendar. Right. If you have 
it tends to take three minutes, like drinking a glass of sure. water or calling your mother. It, it doesn't <laughs> fit on your calendar either. So the calendar is really optimized for meetings. You only call your mom for three minutes? No, uh, 15, <laughs> 20. Right. Got okay. it. But the calendar is not good for lots of things. No, it's true. Um, it's good for some things. So what happened is that the rest of it, you can actually try and do a hack and write them anyway, even though it's not ideal. Right, like a one-hour block where you do 20 different little things? That's right. So you say time for little things, time for email, time for Facebook, big chunk of time to do important tasks, but you don't know what it will be. So you can do hacks around that. But that's so time-consuming and it's not perfect. But what happened is most people don't do that. And then what happened? They look at their calendar and you say, oh my goodness, I'm free. I have nothing to do. Right. What should I do with this time? Netflix. Meeting. <laughs> Somebody asking for a meeting. Of course I can. There's a little uh, suggestions we give people, which is to, if somebody's asking you to do something a year from now, ask yourself whether you would do it next week. That is such a great idea. I read that in your book and I thought, this is life-changing because the problem in this bears repeating. If, if somebody asks you to do something a long time from now, ask yourself if you would do it next week. Because the problem that I had up until very recently, and I think in part from reading some of your work, I realized, wow, I do this to myself all the time. Oh yeah, I'll totally travel to Idaho for your birthday party <laughs> in three months. Why wouldn't I do that? And then two weeks before that, I look at my monthly calendar and I go, why do I have plans to go to Idaho for this birthday party? How do I get out of this? Yeah. How do I not do that? Yep. And then there's another uh, approach, which is uh, we use the term cancellation. <laughs> yes. This is the, the happiness you get when something was canceled. So when somebody asked you to do something, you simulate in your mind how happy would you be if the day before they canceled. Right. And if you're really happy. You don't reschedule it if, if you can. But that's the thing, right? That you're going to be very busy next year, just like you are today. Just the details are not written. So we don't understand the opportunity costs right. of time. We understand the opportunity cost of time of today. Like if you ask me to do something else today, I can't. I'm booked solid. There's no way. 2018? Yeah. Look at yeah. my calendar. It looks quite free. Book, book the whole nothing, day. Block off the whole day. Yeah. But the calendar, I don't think the calendar is enough. I do think we need extra hacks around it. Look, the big meaningful things that we want to do take time and they don't give us the same jolt of momentary satisfaction when we do them. Right. Sadly, long-term happiness, nobody reports that answering more emails give them long-term right. happiness. So how do we get the important to way more than the urgent? And how do we say no? How do we basically say, you know what? Yes, I have a million emails. Yes, I know I will not be able to get to all of them. But there's this thing that is a high priority for me. And I want to make sure that I don't procrastinate it every day and therefore never get to it. Right. I want to make sure I... I start. And we need some hacks around the calendar to help us do this, some discipline around that. So do you have calendar hacks or hacks around the calendar other than just making sure you have the appropriate amounts of time blocked off? So a few years ago, we actually had a little startup called Timeful that we, we tried to do that. So what we tried to do was to ask people, what do you want to do? And we would seed people with things like, you know, I want to read more, I want to exercise, I want to call my mother, I, I have these big projects. And then we would take those things and we had kind of an AI background and schedule for people in specific times and also see when people did them and not. And then we would, over time, try to schedule in better times. And we learned lots of things. We learned, for example, that the first two hours of the day are generally hours that people have high cognitive capacity. Really? Yeah. I'm not talking like <laughs> 5 a.m. You woke up at 5 today. Okay, yeah, it was awful. And I, We're not talking 5 to 7. Yeah. But 9 to 11 are usually very good hours 
for people. And if you come to the office at nine and you have kind of high capacity, in the first two hours you do email and Facebook. It's all wasted. You just took the hours that we have high capacity are so precious. You have a few of those a day. And they're so much more productive than the hours after lunch where you can hardly function. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and nevertheless, we don't use them right. So we would also try to take this into account. Like our model was, imagine you're a factory and you have lots of different tasks coming your way and you have some hours that you're productive and some hours you're not productive. And how do you create priorities and how do you figure out where to put what? So we, we actually had lots of success. We got people to call their mothers and uh, drink water and exercise. And reading is incredible. You talk to people about reading and people say, I haven't read. And then you say, you know what? Read 15 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. Like just put it in your calendar, read 15 minutes a day. It helps you fall asleep better. And you say you want to read. It's amazing what you could do in 15 minutes a day if you do it. If you do it, yeah. Or writing. An average book has, let's say, 80,000 words. If you wrote a thousand words a day, how many days would it take you to write a book? Three months. <laughs> yes. Counting all the editing in the back, in the days yeah, you took forget, off forget, to do other forget things. This. But, but yeah, I mean, you say, you <laughs> yeah. say, if you wrote a thousand words a day, if you wrote 500 words a day, you could produce two books a year. Almost nobody is at that level of productivity because we just don't get it. Like the amount of low productivity we have is just painful. And to put that in perspective, I remember when I was a kid counting approximately how many words I could write on one of those standard college-ruled papers. That was 500 words. That's not that much writing. Email, you're writing much more than 500 words a day. Oh, yeah. But it's a very different story. Actually thinking and slowly and writing and so on. B.F. Skinner, the famous psychologist, basically had this rule that he would come to the office and he would write, I think, 730 words and he would stop on the words. (laughs) 730 words, middle of a sentence. Something like this. He would stop. But he had this very, and he was unbelievably prolific. So trying to figure out how we prioritize the things that are actually important for us and stick to it is very useful. Here's another thing. I became very interested in rules. And the thing is that if you leave things to your own judgment, Every time you like it to fail. Yeah, I was every time. <laughs> I was gonna say, I hope he doesn't say that's the best way to do it because that's the strategy is <laughs> it, not terrible, for me. Right? Yeah. But, but the moment you have a rule, you basically have taken some decision out of your mind. And actually, there's an interesting story. There's a an Orthodox Jewish scholar uh, called Eliyahu Dessler who said that if you take all the Jewish people and you order them from the least religious person on the left to the most religious person on the right, and that's true for all religions. One of the differences is they have more and more rules that dictate their lives that are outside of their considerations, right? So if you're a secular person, you have to decide about everything. Yes. Uh, what you dress and what you eat and so on. As you become more and more religious, religion doesn't regulate everything in life, but it regulates more and more. Sure. You don't have a question of what you're going to do Saturday. Especially if you're a Hasidic Jew or, or Ger, you know, you know that sect, Ger? Yeah. Super strict. Yeah. The decision has been carried out for you. And it's kind of interesting. When I travel, I I sometimes try to meet chief rabbis. I'm very curious about religion. Like think about, you know, you're interested in startups. What are the most successful social institutions out there? Sure. Yeah. And I'm using the word successful in terms of survival, not in terms of necessarily positive impact on human life. Sure. Religion. Yeah, absolutely. Clearly, right? Yeah, clearly. What's working so well? So there's lots of things. Guilt. (laughs) (laughs) There's lots of things about religion. There are complex organizations. But so I asked the chief rabbi of England and of South Africa, I said, if I was going to keep one of the Ten Commandments, what would you recommend? What do you think they recommended? 
<laughs> I'm guessing it's going to be the one that's like the Sabbath or something. Exactly. It, really? Yeah. Why? And they both said the same thing. They said, look, first of all, you don't need a commandment telling you not to kill. That's it's true. It's kind of uh, right, okay. obvious. But, you know, but some of them are less obvious, but they say, if you think about progress in life, we think that taking a day off decreased progress. What we don't see is how much freedom it gives us and how much clarity of mind and rest and so on to create this. So I actually tried once a, a random Sabbath and once on the Day of Atonement. I don't work on the Sabbath. It's not a lot. It's a very interesting process to be in a day that you say, on this day, there's no electronics. Because usually when I'm home, no matter what I do, 15, 25% yeah. of my brain is occupied by the email that I'm probably getting. Right. Like as we speak now, you're probably simulating what kind of email you're having, all the things you're not answering, your phone is off, maybe all this notification, who did you respond? It's very hard not to have part of our mind being busy. Right. But when you say this is a day, there's no electronics, and not only that, it has a higher order meaning. Right. It's not just your decision. Even if it you don't believe in God, you say there's a social agreement about this being an issue. I mean, imagine that every day you considered whether you should recycle or not. Should <laughs> I recycle? How much benefit is it giving the right. municipality? It's cold outside, it's raining. On many days, you would decide not worth it. Absolutely. But if you had a rule that said good people recycle, very different story. Now, every instant is not just about yes or no to recycle. It's about the fact that as a principle, that you want to adhere to. Being a vegetarian basically helps people do something that they want, but by having this rule and having a moral judgment around it, being vegan <laughs> yeah. even more, it helps people adhere to those rules. So in the same way, I think that with productivity, there's all kinds of rules that we can create and we might not want to give them the same you know, moral judgments that vegans have sure. about the rest of us, but I think that those things would certainly help with productivity. So are these all identity-based behaviors, right? So it's, okay, you are a vegan, you are Jewish, you are Catholic, because it seems like you could use that to shape other people's behavior and not necessarily in a nefarious way. I mean, you could do this with kids, for example, if your kid won't share, I don't have kids, so I, this could be out of the left field, but if your kid won't share, you can say, what would Captain America do? Would Captain America share? Instead of, why don't you want to share? Well, I don't want to. I want the whole piece of candy. You say, well, would Captain America share? Captain America might share. So identity is very helpful. It's very helpful because it creates this sense of continuity. So even, for example, saying people, do you save or are you a saver? Are you a voter? Basically, all of those things that create identity help. Now, you can have rules without identity, right? You could say every day from eight to nine, I don't open email, I don't open Facebook, I don't open YouTube, I just write. And you can have a rule like this and you can try to adhere to it. I'm a writer, is more powerful. Yeah, but if you want to add to it, there's all kinds of things you can add in terms of motivation. Identity is helpful, public commitment. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you could do to make it more powerful. If you're a vegetarian, it's kind of funny, I'm, I'm a vegetarian at home. At really? home, we never eat meat. I think it's multiple reasons. Some ideology about animals, some worry about modern agriculture and some health. But it's not identity. It's not identity in a strong way because I'm not a vegetarian. Right. But I created two separate contexts where I don't do it at home. But when I'm traveling, I have different rules. 
I, I what, the rule is whatever's easier and looks tastiest <laughs> on the menu is I say, what yes. you eat. Give me two of those. Yeah. But the moment, if you can get people to have it as an identity, it's much easier to maintain the rule. That's really interesting. So I can see that working with parenting. I can see that working within corporations that have strong corporate identity. For example, people who work here, we stay late. We work hard. We help each other out. We don't yep. steal office supply. Whatever it is you want. Because that's how we roll here at, I don't know, Apple, NASDAQ, whatever it is, you know, that we go the extra mile. And yep. you can see that in the marketing, but if you can do that with your employees and your team or loyalty, if you, if you're talent recruiting, if the people are constantly be being recruited away from you, like they are here in Silicon Valley, if loyalty is the identity that your company has, you might stand to benefit strongly from that as, a, as an organization. Absolutely. People seek identity in many, many ways. And there are so many ways in which we don't allow people to extract all the joy of identity that they could. When I was still teaching at MIT, I have kind of a strange life, right? I do research and I do research on chocolate and bionicles and, you know, I give people a chance to steal money from me. And, right. <laughs> and I had this assistant, he had this very strange job because basically he had to uh, fight with the MIT accounting people <laughs> to reimburse me for chocolates and Legos and people stealing money and, you know. <laughs> so, but his life, his life was basically constrained to an interface with SAP and the MIT accounting people. And like, <laughs> How know, long I, did he last in that position? Well, I wanted to buy a vending machine and they were appalled. Like, why do I want a vending machine? And where's my business? Like, you know, those, anyway, so the guy was just suffering. You know, he was actually an important part of the research process sure. because without him, we couldn't have done anything. How anything are you going to get your vending machine? But, but he also. <laughs> He also had no idea why he was doing anything that he was doing. Ah. So, so after a while, I started inviting him to our lab meetings. Now, he was an administrator. Like, his job was to put numbers into an SAP form that sure. somebody else would push another button and so on. That was his job. But I invited him to a lab meeting, and he was not a PhD student. He was not a researcher. But he got a glimpse of why we were doing what we were doing. And his understanding and his commitment to his role was very, very different hmm. afterward. And I think too often we have kind of the Charlie Chaplin modern days kind of approach to people who work, right? People are just doing widgets. So people are just kind of labor and we can just replace them. Some companies, particularly some of the big ones in Silicon Valley have this idea that all programmers should be interchangeable. And if somebody right. leaves, we could just you know move a little bit of the people around and we all have cubicles. And cubicles, I think there are some companies less here that's in Silicon Valley, but there's some companies that the cubicles, people don't even have a, the same cubicle every day. That was in the book, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. I just read about this. That's yeah. right. Uh, this was in Payoff. Yes. I wrote about this. There's some companies that people come in the morning and they're just rows of empty cubicles. And if you come earlier in the morning, you get to pick a good one, but, but oh, you man. can never have a picture and you can have nothing, right? And it just gives you the notion that you're replaceable. That is just, a, it reminds me of that movie. It's an old black and white German movie. I think it's called Metropolis or something. Have you seen it? Yeah. Where they're just pushing coal levers in some sweaty basement somewhere. That's right. Ugh. And I think that, you know, in the, we treat too many people like that. And no, it's not exactly like that. But if you think about the continuum between doing something which is completely mechanical without thinking, without knowing, and you think about the other way, which is to, know why you're doing it and seeing the people that you bring joy and have a full set of understanding of your role in the world, I don't think we take advantage of that continuum. If we were any company and we would start bringing testimonials from customers about how their lives have changed, 
in a positive way, we would take time from people's lives. Sure. Right? So you could say, oh, my employer should do another two forms at SAP rather than listen to some customer talking about how much improvement they got in aspect X, Y, or Z. And we have this functional view that said, let's not waste our time because the real job, what's their obligation is to fill all these forms. And we don't think about the fact that they should care about these forms and they should want to do them well and they should want to do them in a way that is improving things. And they might stay a little later. And caring is something that we can get only by increasing more the, the meaning of what people are doing and we don't do a good job there. And we can do that through, in part, through identity. That's right. Nice. I love that. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all the amazing sponsors and discount codes, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now, back to the show. You have a great documentary that I saw a long time ago. I mean, years ago. It was the first time I emailed you out of the blue. The documentary which we'll link up in the show notes here, you talk a lot about cheating and lying. And I'd love to hear some of the conclusions because first of all, I believe that pretty much everybody at some point in their life, no matter how good of a person they are, has cheated on something in school or a game or, or hopefully not anything more severe than that, but, but we know what happens. Why do people cheat in the first place? Yeah, so actually, you know, dishonesty is a, first of all, it's a fascinating topic by itself, but it's also a wonderful lens to think about almost everything in life. Yeah. Because- The model we have for dishonesty is a cost-benefit analysis. It's a model in which people say, what do I stand to gain? What do I stand to lose? Here's a, you know, a bodega. How much money do they have? (laughs) What's the chance I'll get caught? How much time will I get in prison? Let Uh, me figure out if that's a good idea to steal, to rob the place. The reality is that, first of all, we don't know. I mean, if I ask you, like, I gave you a list of potential crimes and I say, how much time will you get in prison for each of those? And I'm an attorney and I have no idea. And I guarantee you even a criminal lawyer probably wouldn't have exact idea. So, so A, we don't, we don't really know. Um, but also, that's not how we think about things. Instead, what's interesting is we have this internal judgment about what we feel good and bad about. And what we feel good and bad about is about our conscience. It's not about outcomes in life. And what's interesting is that it turns out that dishonesty is all about rationalizations. It's all about the question of what can you do and get away with and not get away with from the perspective of not being caught, get away with from the perspective of you not think of yourself as a bad person. So it's what can you do and still maintain the idea that you're a wonderful, caring (laughs) human being. And lots of things help this rationalization. It's always the case about what can you do and still feel that you're okay. And Mm -hmm. lots of things help that. Everybody else is doing it. Sure. I was screwed before. It's my turn. Right. I'm making up for it. I own a vending machine. I'll tell you about this vending machine experiment. I set up the vending machine to say 75 cents for each candy. But the inside of the machine, I set up to be zero. So what happened is no matter how much money you put, the machine said everything is changed. Let's give you back everything and the candy. Right. So you come in. There's all these buttons. You put your money, you press the button, you get your candy and all your money back. Oh, man. And there's a big sign that says, if something is wrong with the machine, please call this number. Right. And it's my cell phone number, so I know when people are calling. <laughs> so question number one, what percentage of the people called? Probably not that many. Zero. Zero, <laughs> right? Because when I think, is something wrong with this machine? I mean, my candy didn't come out. My money <laughs> stayed in there. Exactly. Not, not it gave me free candy. Exactly. So what happened is, so nobody called. And then how many candies do you think people took? I think it was empty after a certain period of time. It, it was. But how many, the average person, how many candies did they take? 
Like, would one person just empty the machine? No, I don't think so. I think at some point they're going to go, I've had enough. But I don't think it would just be one, would that's it? That's right. So the majority took either three or four. Yeah, that sounds nobody, about right. <laughs> nobody took five. You're revealing your own I'm, level of dishonesty. I know. But nobody took five. And, that's good. And I think what they were saying is they were saying something like, I remember this other vending machine that took my money and didn't give me a candy. This is vending machine justice. Karma. This Karma. Is, actually, the only mystery is why it takes so long for the yeah. world to, to get back. I should have been getting this for free years ago. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And that other vending machine must have been a close relative of this one. It just, you know, we're, we're evening things out. So rationalization is a big part of it. And, and lots of things help rationalization. By the way, it's kind of shocking that we have this model of cost-benefit analysis. And it's not just that we have this model, but we do legislation based on that. So think about something like the death penalty. Sure. The death penalty is based on the idea that people would say, oh, I don't want to die. Uh, let me not commit this crime. Imagine you come home at night and you're pissed off with your significant other, and you go to the kitchen and you take a big knife, and you say, oh, we have the death penalty here. Let's do something else. Unlikely. <laughs> yes. Unlikely. The results show that the death penalty have no effect. No deterrent effect. No deterrent. Uh, California, three strikes and you're out. No effect. Right, especially because it's not proportional to the crime. I mean, if you shoplift three times and now you're in jail for life, it's ridiculous. But not only is it ridiculous, it wasn't a deterrent, right? It, it right, wasn't it didn't even people work. said, oh, I had twice already, let me stop now. Yeah. This is just not how people think. Now, it would be nice if people thought this way. Mm -hmm. but, like, but, I'm on my second strike. I really shouldn't steal that that's right. let Fifth me Avenue change, candy bar let from me that vending machine. Life now. So what happened is that we have this model of how people behave. The model is inaccurate. We go ahead and we design the world. We create legislation and rules and litigation. We, we try to, to change how we regulate banking based on this wrong model about how the world works. Well, in fact, if we understood how the world worked from the beginning, we would set up the system in a much better way. So think about Wall Street. Are there really psychopaths who are trying to steal our money in 2007, 8, and, and so on? I mean, some of those people that I worked with certainly were, but I think <laughs> the, the majority are probably just people who are, one, rationalizing, you know, oh, my parents were poor and I was poor growing up, so now I'm already... And, and not just that. They say everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. And, they everybody, say nobody, and it's true. Everybody they know is doing it. And they would say things like, nobody would buy it if it was, doesn't make sense. Right. And it's rational. And this is what I'm supposed to do. And I'm doing it for the shareholders. Mm -hmm. And this is my fiduciary responsibility right. to the shareholders of the company. And, you know, people make up these stories and we don't regulate that. Right. right. So instead of regulating conflicts of interest, we're trying to... We're treating the problem as if the real issue is planned dishonesty right. rather than something that comes from incremental behavior design. This and makes slippery, sense. And slippery slopes. If we're talking about lying instead of cheating, like shifting from, from cheating to lying, how does this affect our brain? Because in the documentary, it seems like there's an assertion that the brain might adapt to being untruthful, to telling untruths. The term I, I, I try to use is dishonesty. Instead of lying. Instead of lying. Because I think that I would much prefer to describe the act as being dishonest, whereas I think lying implies intention. Okay. And a lot of times, because of rationalization, yes, you are lying, but do you truly understand at that moment that you were lying? I'm not so sure. I mean, it, it depends. In certain cases, yeah. for sure not, right? You know, think about something like Robin Hood. Imagine Robin Hood Great rationalization. Stealing, stealing from the rich. Do you think he felt bad? No. I've seen that cartoon. <laughs> he didn't go. feel bad at all. They're right. <laughs> so, so the act can be described as dishonest, but lying 
uh, I think is actually much less common than people think. I think there are many more cases where it's wishful blindness and sometimes self-deception or not complete awareness of what we're doing. So I sure. think it's a much better way to think about it. But my question was, does our brain then adapt oh, to yes. that dishonesty? Absolutely. And how does it adapt? What are we, what's this process look like? What are we seeing here? So the brain mostly reacts to changes, right? So when you move from a outside to the inside, in the beginning, it looks very dark. A few minutes into it, your brain is used to it. Adaptation is about the fact that you get used to what you have. Like in the morning when you put your clothes on, you you knew you were putting them on. Right, I was aware. You were aware. I didn't do a very great job today, but I was aware of what was going you on. You look lovely. <laughs> Thank you. But later in the day, you don't notice that anymore. And that's what the brain is supposed to do. It's supposed to kind of get us to be neutral at the level of constant activation and just pay attention to things that are deviating okay. from that. And the same thing happens with lying, that the moment or dishonesty, the moment you start acting in a dishonest way, it's not a surprise anymore. It just kind of in the background. It's kind of like the light it becomes changes your program. a bit. That's just the, the normal state of affairs. So again, if you think about us as being dishonest because we do cost-benefit analysis and we calculate all the time and so on, that's a very different model. Right. But if you say, what makes me feel comfortable and uncomfortable? The question is, do you even notice it? And the answer is we often don't even notice yeah. it. Why? Because we've done it so much. It's just the norm. Okay. Here's an experiment. Uh, you take two people that don't know each other, you put them in a room, and you say, please introduce yourself. Talk to the other person for 10 minutes. They introduce themselves. 10 minutes later, you put them into a separate room, and you say, did you lie in these 10 minutes? And almost everybody says no. Yeah, sure. And then you say, luckily, we taped everything you've said. Why don't we play it back to you sentence by sentence and tell us which each sentence, was it perfectly true, oh, truthful man. or not? On average, people say that they lie between two and three times after you do this exercise. Really? Now, what happened is that social lying, we just do all the time. What kind of examples are we talking about? I just told you, you look nice. This is yeah. a terrible shirt with these white <laughs> pants. I know. <laughs> I, so, all right, nailed it on the example. But, but, it was a little too fast. <laughs> <laughs> but no, the reality is that we have a lot of social niceties, for example. I'm not saying that people get to a room and, you know, kind of selling the Brooklyn Bridge Scheming, to somebody. Yeah. But we have all kinds of things. We exaggerate about our GPA and, you know, if it's an undergrad or we, we say or we say nicer things about I mean. This is the, a part of the social niceties of the world mm. is where we kind of, you know, smooth over some uncomfortable things in, in life and we do it for ourselves and we do it for other people. Now, at the moment that we do it, do we catch ourselves? It's, oh my goodness, I told him I was late no. because, like you told me today that you were late because there was traffic. Right, that was actually true. <laughs> How many times in your life have you blamed traffic when, in fact, it was just that you got up too late and started working too late and should have? I, you know what? I actually, as of the past uh, few months and years, I never lie about anything consciously, right? Like as the social lying probably happens. But today, if I were running late because I got up too late, I probably wouldn't have said I got up too late. I would have just said I'm running late and then just left <laughs> it blank at the end. But I had what I thought was a good reason. So I was like, oh, yes, traffic. <laughs> now I'm, I'm additionally late because of traffic. traffic yes, that's right. right. So. You know, what would happen if you got up late and there was traffic? We yeah. wouldn't say, I got up late and there was traffic. No, would I would have just been, <laughs> thank you, traffic. All right. Yes. And we don't catch ourselves doing it because it's kind of such a part of the standard norm. So, and now we talk about just, you know, white lies and social lying, but of course it goes into all kinds of things. At the moment you start doing something, it just become your model of working. You don't pay attention to it. It doesn't register. This could be a slippery slope, or, or does that not bear Absolutely. out? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 
a guy that we interviewed for the movie. Uh, his name is Joe Pep. Uh, Joe was a cyclist. He was cycling for the U.S. Olympic team. Really oh, good. Oh, right. Very, very good cyclist. Anyway, he cycled for the Olympic team, went back to school, got his degree, went back to cycling. First race, he feels he is just as good. Everybody else is slightly better. That night, he cries. Very, I mean, cycling was all his... Well, one of his friends gives him an address and the name of a physician. He goes to see this physician, white coat, stethoscope, gives him a prescription for EPO. EPO is a cancer right. drug that increases the production of red blood cells. Goes to the pharmacy, give him the prescription. They give him the prescription. His insurance company pays for it. He only pays the deductible. Goes back to his room. He takes all kinds of medication, you know, for health and, I mean, legal stuff. Right, right sure. But he also injects this one time, then another time, then another time, then another time. Then he discovers everybody in the team does it. Then they do it together. Later on, there's a shortage of EPO, but he has friends on the Chinese team. They put him in touch with factory in China. He imports EPO. Jeez. Another team hears about it. They ask him to import as well. He's a good guy. He helps them as well. Now he's a drug dealer. Now he's a drug dealer. Think about this story. If you talk to Joe when he was like 19, yeah. racing for the Olympic team, and you say, Joe... What are the odds that you will become a drug dealer? Yeah, he would say, are you out of your mind? Never. I would never My life is cycling. This is what I love doing. I can't imagine, first of all, I can't imagine being a drug dealer, but I can't imagine doing anything that would risk the thing in life that I love so much. Sure, hurt the sport, hurt his ability to play the sport. He's, he's banned. He's banned. Yeah. Right? But when you talk about saying, don't think about the last step, think about the first step. Now put yourself in Joe's situation. Imagine that you cycling was all you loved, you finish your undergrad, you're back to cycling, you don't do well. Don't you cry that night? Yeah, absolutely, I cry that night. Don't you talk to a friend? Yeah. Of course you do. They give you a name for a doctor and a, don't you go? Of course. course you go. The doctor gives you a prescription. Don't you go to the pharmacy? Well, it's from a doctor. It's so from a doctor. It, there's nothing the, wrong with it. The pharmacy fills it up. Yeah. <clears throat> don't you take it? Sure. If you took it, don't you take the first injection? I mean, of course. Think about yeah. Think about that stuff. Like, when would you stop? I asked you about what kind of thing does he think would have made him stop? He said if the pharmacy declined his claim. Sure. But other than that, like when would we have stopped? It's very easy to judge from the outside. And yes. by the way, when we look at criminal behavior, we often see the last point. Sure, yeah. But you we see don't the violent see the slippery. crime and whatever else. Yeah. But the slippery slope is actually an incredibly important thing to do. And, you know, we often look at the first transgression as only it's the first time and it's just the beginning and it's small and it's so on. The fact is that we need to be careful Yeah, because it's true that it's the first time. It's yes. true it's very sad, but it also means that there's a chance for a slippery slope and we need to worry about that. So what can we do to reverse the process? Let's say I'm starting to, let's say, man, you know, I, I'm late because of traffic, but then, man, everybody always believes traffic excuse. So I'm just going to be late all the time and not care. And I'm always just going to say traffic and people will be too polite to say anything. And... Well, if I can lie about that, why don't I just lie to somebody else about this other thing? How do I catch myself or how do I catch others before it's too late? Is there a way to reverse this process? Because it seems to get easier, as you said. Yeah. So first of all, the sad thing is we don't have a slippery improvement. No slippery upward climb? No slippery upward. For an upward climb, what you need to do is you need to have a decision point and fresh page. Mm -hmm. There's no... Oh, I'm lying up to now, you know, three times a week about being late. Every month, improve it by 10%. Right. You know, there's nothing like that. What you need to do is create a rule. 
that say this is not the right behavior and from now on. Now, there is a, a group of people who are trying to be radically honest. The movement started in Germany. That sounds um, about right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I want to be married to uh, somebody who told me the absolute truth. Your all the shoes time. are ugly. <laughs> But I think we do need to figure out what are the important things in life where we need to regulate ourselves sure. and how do we do things there. So as a university professor, there's all kinds of places where I could create serious conflicts of interest for myself. Sure, yeah. Can my students work on a project that I get to do some outside of the university activity? Mm, interesting, yeah. So I told you about the startup It would have been fun to take my students and get them to work on this project, but it creates conflicts of interest. So I decided not to. I was asked to be an expert witness in a class action lawsuit. Oh, wow. They pay lots of, lots of money. Sure. I decided to do it only if I would do it for free. Really? They must have been really thrilled to have you on board for free. Well, I asked them to donate the money. Oh, good. Okay. So, yeah, make those guys pay. Yeah, there's no reason not to get them to pay. Uh, but I picked a charity and I said, please pass the money to the charity. Now, that was an expensive decision sure. because it took me some time and the money could have gone to me. It went to this charity, which I was very happy about. But, you know, still, it's an expensive decision. But I said to myself, I don't want to be paid to have an opinion. Why? Because I know how corrosive conflicts of interest are. Right. So that opinion could have been modified by the fact that you got a check for 30 grand sitting in your back That's pocket. Right. Look, one of the best investments in the U.S., the best investment is lobbying. Oh, yeah. Well. And you know why? Because people are cheap. So, so you can buy somebody a, a beer and a sandwich or, you know, maybe a steak or sure. fish, like vegetable. Yes. Yeah, it depends and on their diet. Right? On anyway, you can buy somebody a beer and all of a sudden they start looking at life from your perspective. Sure. And you know what? It's a beautiful thing. Why is it a beautiful thing? Because the two of us can meet, we can have a beer and we start liking each other better. And it's a wonderful thing on a social realm. Right. Do you want to mix it with lobbying? No. Not so much. I don't want somebody else making a decision on my behalf because somebody Or else bought them a beer. Behind me yeah. Because somebody no, bought thanks. them a beer. So conflicts of interest are one of those things that are incredibly corrosive, but we don't see it. I mean, think about yourself. Do you see how you are biased by some conflicts of interest? Very hard to, to see it. It's tough. And I have to look at these things with a very sober eye. And also sometimes my fiance now, she'll say something like, maybe you should look at it this other way. And you don't want to look at it that way because you'd rather cash the check. You'd rather do it your way instead of thinking, well, how other people's feelings or their business might be affected by it. It's hard. So I decided as I was doing this research on dishonesty and as I was starting to understand the corrosive effects of conflicts of interest, I decided to try and reduce the conflicts of interest in my life. So, and there's two parts. It's like, what are the cases where I could have a conflict of interest? Yeah. Somebody pays me to have an opinion or a company is hiring me. And then on the other side, I was trying to think about the people who are service providers for me, financial advisors, physician, dentist, and so on. Right. They, Where's they their have a conflict of interest. interest. And how do I try to reduce that? Yeah, that's always scary. Right. Very scary. By the way, it's very tough to go to your doctor yeah. and ask them, I think you have a conflict of interest. I would like a second opinion. It is such a violation of trust. It is. Right? You're basically saying, and there's no way to say it. it's not you. It's just human nature. I think it's yeah. everybody. Is, Look, is, everybody is trying to kill me with drug prescriptions <laughs> that I don't need. So I'm just going right. to ask But another But I really doctor. want to know your, tell me which drug company has paid you recently to have an opinion. Or <laughs> it's a terrible situation. And we really... Very unpleasant, right? It's very unpleasant to go to a doctor 
and to keep in your mind the fact that their recommendations and what you will take will have an impact on their financial outcome. Yeah. And to realize that it's not that they're bad people, but they could be biased by that. And you might be the one paying the bill for their biases. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a terrible, it's a, it's a very unpleasant thought, but I think it's also true. Yeah, it, it has to be because doctors are human. And if they share all the same faults, which they do, then it's true. Yeah. And you know, and, and you see it. I mean, you see that when you go to, a, to surgeons, they recommend surgery. You go to, I mean, everybody recommends what's... Yeah what they get to benefit from. Yeah, even and then even if they're blind to that, right? Like, oh, you should definitely get the surgery. And another doctor says, well, I would only do that under these conditions. But meanwhile, they're trying to throw you off under the knife right then. And again, it's not because they're saying, oh, let me charge this person a bit more. Right. It's because if you get paid for surgery, everybody seems like a surgical case. Right, what's that expression when you're... Uh, if you're a hammer, everything yeah, looks, like, looks a like a nail. Yeah. I always get that wrong, but that's exactly what I was looking for. So this question has been sort of gnawing at me since you'd mentioned that cheating is behavioral. Do you think it's cultural? Do you think it's human? Or do you think it's a combination of both? So it is both. So first of all, let me tell you how we measure dishonesty. So we give people a die, like a regular six-sided die. And we say, why don't you throw this die and we'll give you whatever it comes up on. Comes on one, we'll give you one dollar, two, two, three, three, and so on. You can get paid based on the top side or the bottom side. Top or bottom, you decide, but don't tell us. So if you're in the experiment, I would say, please think top or bottom, but don't tell me. You have it? Okay. Keep it in mind. Now roll the die. And you roll the die, and it comes with five on the bottom and two on the top. And now I say, what did you pick? Right. Now, if you picked bottom, you say bottom and you get $5. No problem. If you happen to pick top, now you have a dilemma. Do you say the truth? top and get $2, or do you change your mind and you say bottom and get $5? And people do this 20 times. And every time they think top or bottom, they decide, they roll, they see what happened, they tell us what they, they chose, and you run these experiments, you see that people are unbelievably lucky. Uh, yeah, much higher than chance. You're much higher than chance. You know, people don't get 20 out of 20, but they get 13 or 14, right? So people cheat a little bit. Luck has a nice feature of focusing on the 6-1 die tosses. These yeah, are the ones that people right. get it more right than the 3-4 one. Right. That one, somehow luck doesn't care so much. So we run these experiments. We try them in, in many countries. I grew up in Israel. I tried Israel. Israel is just like the Americans. See, that's good to know. I lived in Israel for a while, and I'll tell you, a lot of my Americanisms did not go over well. Like, hi, how are you? You don't care. Why are you asking me? <laughs> uh, tough neighborhood. Right. Yeah, that's a different story. So we'll come back to this. But Francesca Gino, my Italian collaborator, said, come to Italy, we'll show you what the Italians can what, do. What cheating looks like? Just the same. We tried Turkey, China, Germany, Portugal, South Africa, Kenya. We tried Colombia, Japan. Anyway, we tried lots of places. What about Russia? We did not try Russia. We did try England. We did try Canada because the Canadians always think that they're better than everybody that's else. Right. They're not. Good. Um, you hear that, Canada? <laughs> So, but here's the thing. I mean, you've traveled to lots of places. You know that dishonesty feels very different in different places. How sure. can it be that we don't find a difference? And this is an important point about social science. It's a task about cheating, but it's an abstract general task. It's something that people have not encountered before. It's not embedded in their culture. So because of that, that task is checking the basic human ability to cheat a little bit and feel good about it. And from that perspective, we're all the same. Just because you're born Japanese or German or American doesn't change your ability to rationalize 
small dishonesty. Interesting. That's true, but it doesn't mean that culture doesn't matter. In what way culture matters? Culture doesn't change you as a human being. Culture changes you in a domain-by-domain-specific way. When I ask my students how many of them have illegally downloaded music on their computers, they all do. Right. Everybody would admit that, Everybody I would admits it. They don't seem to be ashamed. They know it's illegal. I ask them about illegal downloads. It's not as if they don't know. Now, does that mean that they are corrupt as human beings? No. What it means is they took this one activity, which is called illegal downloads, and said, this is not a moral question. Right. This is something like, this is how we do things. So I deserve the new Beyonce some, Somehow this. And actually, I, I talked to a, a mobster, which was very interesting. Oh, now, yeah. now, in his life, he did lots of terrible things. And you could think that he has no morals, but that wasn't true. He had two types of lives. He has life within the family and outside of the family. Outside of the family, it was just about maximizing wealth. There was no honor. There was no morality. It was just about cheating as much as possible, assuming he can get away. Inside of the family, he had very strict morals. His handshake was his handshake. His word was his word. There was very strict rules. Now, that's kind of an extreme case, but this is what culture does. Culture takes domains of life and say, this is not a moral. So for example, even bribing, different places in the world feel differently about who you bribe. In South Africa, for example, it's perfectly fine to bribe a policeman who catches you speeding. Really? People actually talk over dinner about how little money they had to spend to get away with it, right? It's kind of a point of bragging. In Kenya, it seems to be quite fine to bribe a municipality. Culture does matter, but the way culture matters, it doesn't change who we are. Right. It changes how we apply to specific domains in life. Right. Think it doesn't about, change the degree. It just changes where we apply it. Think about infidelity. If you remember when Mitterrand, the French president, passed away, his mistress was at his state funeral with their illegitimate child. Oh, my goodness. Now, imagine the U.S. Yeah, that just someone like it would be front page news. Who will show up to Clinton's state Funeral Probably when he, when not he passes. Monica Lewinsky, yeah. yeah. But, you know, if you think about this, it's are we more moral than the French in general? No. But are there some areas in life when we at least outside have very different rules about what behavior is like? So that's how culture matters. Culture is a, it's not a backbone change to humanity. It's a way that we apply our understanding about what's acceptable in specific domains. People in startups, you know, we talk about dishonesty. Oh, yeah. I asked lots of people about how they decide what a user is. People in startup, how many users we have and what's an active user right, and what do we right. call this? That's how you get investment. So. How, that's how you get. It is a party of dishonesty. I'm sure. But they all know it and they all kind of have rules about how it's actually okay in that domain to exaggerate in all kinds of... By the way, it's terrible for the industry, right? Yeah. Because you have to inflate. It's like a recommendation letter from college. But if everybody inflates, that nobody trusts these numbers. No. So it destroys the whole thing. But anyway, think about that as a general rule, not just about dishonesty, is that deep down we're similar, but culture gives us rules to how to apply our decision-making in different domains separately. Now, this is all behavioral economics. How did you get interested in this field in the first place? My initial interest was not so much in, in behavioral economics, but I was badly injured when I was 18. And I was in hospital for a very, very long time, about three years. And there were all kinds of things in hospital that I, I just didn't like. 
One of them was the process of bandage removal. But there's lots of things that the nurses and doctors did to me that I thought were just wrong. When I left the hospital, I, I did some experiments on pain. I did some other things. I found all kinds of ways in which the intuition of the nurses and doctors were just not the right ones. And I thought about, you know, you have to take the bandages of burn patients, or you have to give people medications for pain, or you do all kinds of things. What are the places where we don't have a good model of the world? We operate as if we know how the world works, but because our model is wrong, we inflict more pain and increase suffering. And I think it's true for lots of things, right? There's lots of things that we just don't understand how the world works. And because of that, we just create more misery in the world. So think about how we waste our time. Think about how we waste our money, how we waste our health. What is our understanding? Think about something like food. There's this very basic belief that if we only told people how much calories are in different dishes, right. people would eat better. And that has not happened. You know what? It turns out it doesn't happen. It doesn't matter. Actually, so we did this experiment uh, with Panda Express. Do you know Panda Express? I do, yeah. I've eaten there a couple of times because I went to college and never again. It's fast food Chinese food, essentially. It's, it's fast food Chinese food. They mostly sell something called orange chicken. Orange chicken? Orange chicken. And orange chicken is, is fried twice. It has salt. And it's, it's incredibly unhealthy yes. and incredibly tasty at yeah, the same time. Yeah, it is delicious. They probably put crack in there. <laughs> we did a study with them in which we put calorie labeling on every item in the menu. What happened? Absolutely nothing. Nothing, yeah. Uh, New York City uh, forced every fast food place to put calorie information on the menu. What happened? Basically nothing. By the way, there were a few poor neighborhoods where people started eating worse. Why? Why? Because they saw this table of money per calorie and they were trying to maximize uh. calories per dollar. But in general, nothing happened. But we think that the only thing we need to do is to give people information and then people will change behavior. <laughs> or Think about something called financial literacy. We say, oh, just tell people about money. They'll behave better. Doesn't change habits. Don't work. From all the good human habits, like things we do well in, as Americans. You say, oh, people basically behave well on this. Sure. we. I think toothbrushing. Yeah, bro. Okay, so really simple stuff. Washing your hands before you eat, things washing like that. Washing your hands. Uh, washing your hands is not as common. But really? Yes, oh, that's kind of gross. Sadly, it's not. <laughs> but you look at what we do well. We reduce smoking from about 40% to 20%. People wear seat belts. Right? Seat belts, yeah. You look, you look at those things and you say, how many of them are driven by information that we told people, you know, it's dangerous to sit to drive without seat belt. Why don't you do it? And people say, oh, yes, of course. Or we told people, oh, you know, it's smoking can kill you. And people say, oh, I had no idea. Let me change behavior. There's not a single documented case, I think, where just giving people information helped. Think about smoking. Smoking helped by villainizing smokers with secondhand smoke. Yes. Right? The scientific evidence for secondhand smoke is very tenuous. You have to, to smoke a lot of it to do this. But by calling something secondhand smoke, we villainized smokers, or so we made them feel bad. Uh, we increased taxes on cigarettes dramatically, and we basically banned it from all kinds of places. Yeah. It was not the information. It was not the Surgeon General telling Warning, you that this yeah. is uh, unhealthy has to be an emotional thing as well, I think, sometimes. It, it, yeah, and, and, you know, villainizing people, very, very emotional. Seatbelts were annoying beeps in the car, taxes, uh, fines, kids in the back screaming, why don't you have the seatbelt? And also the reminder that you have from the belt. Right. But you look at those behaviors, all of them come about not about information. They all come from something else. But nevertheless, we keep on having the ideology that if we only told people, people would behave Right. But 
by the way, texting and driving. Did you know texting and driving is dangerous? Of course I did, yeah. Nevertheless, I'm sure you've texted and drove. I don't drive anymore. Even when I'm driving, I won't text and drive because not just because I'm such a good person, but because I am so, so distractible. And nothing scares me more than being in the car and then maybe I'm on the speakerphone call or something. Even the speakerphone, the hands-free, totally legal. I'm driving and I go, wait a minute, where am I? Where am I going? How did I get so far away from, oh man, I made a wrong turn like four miles ago. If that's happening to me on the hands-free, what's going to happen when I'm typing and not even looking at the road? I know I'm going to get in trouble doing that. But I think most people either don't realize it or they're better drivers than me or some combination of those two things. Yeah, I think they're not realizing is is probably a big one. So it turns out that information just doesn't help and we need to figure out what are the ways in which we can re-engineer the environment to get people to behave differently. So my interest started with pain. Because I said, you know, okay, doctors have these bad intuitions about what would make time in hospital more miserable or less miserable. You were younger back. This is your... Yeah, yeah, I was just 18. Over the years, I, I expanded this. And I thought about all kinds of places in which we don't understand how the world works. And if we understood a little bit better, we could make us a little bit better. And here's the thing. Look at this. Think about how many things we have here that overcome our physical limitations. Sure. We have chairs. These are incredibly comfortable chairs. We have a light. We have air conditioning. I mean, we have all of these things because we realize we need help. There's not- a teleprompter behind you. I mean, this place especially is loaded, yeah. What about the mental world? What about the world in which you have to choose health insurance? Or what about the world in which you have to decide how much to save for retirement or what kind of medical treatment to take? In those worlds, we somehow assume people are perfectly capable. I am just going to let you decide how much you're going to save for retirement. Yeah, And no. I'm just going to like, give you all the options for all the medical procedures and you decide. I mean, you go to a doctor now and you have some illness and they say, who am I to tell you what to do? It's your life. You're the doctor. Here's the medical literature you read and you decide Ugh. what is the right treatment. I think we need to understand how complex our mental life is and it's getting all the time more complex. I mean, 50 years ago, how much did you have to know about finance in order to make good financial decisions? Yeah, not much. Not that much. You had defined benefits. You had a pension. Life was rather simple. People didn't live as much after retirement, so you didn't have to save as much. Now it's incredibly complex. So people need more to know more. Life is much more complex, and we don't have more time to learn how to be good in all of those things. My mission is to do kind of good social engineering. And, Social engineering, common and, theme and, of the you know, show. From, from a, the good perspective is to basically say, let's take our human limitations into account and let's figure out what's the version of the chair. Like, you know, we've spent so much time making chairs comfortable. What is the version of the chair to help people figure out how much to save for retirement and how to trade off happiness now with happiness in the future? And let's figure out what is the version of these things that get people to take their medication on time get us to eat less, all of those things. And I think there's just a ton of progress to make. And sadly, we're not doing it in the right way. I think we're actually going backward. Why do you think that? Because we're creating a temptation society. So think about what is the goal of every company that is around you? Their goal is to tempt you to do something that is good for them right, right now. Right now, yeah. So Spend everybody money. wants your time, money, and attention right now. Now, you might want to be healthy in 30 years from now. Who else has this motivation? maybe your mother, yeah, maybe, maybe Jenny, but, sure. but it, mostly the entities that surround you have a very different interest in mind and they control the environment. So Dunkin' Donuts is 
trying you to get you to eat one more donut today. Yeah. And Facebook They're is doing trying, a great job of that, by the way. <laughs> and Facebook is trying to get you to log into Facebook a few more times a, a also, day. And, and, and so, yeah. also, also knocking it out of the park. Yeah, yeah. really so, killing it. And we're kind of slightly helpless because they control our environment. And we make decisions that are partially based on our environment. And they design the environment with their short-term interest in mind, not our long-term interest in mind. And we see in the book, and Predictably Irrational, there's so many interesting examples of the social engineering, both going right and going wrong, from executive compensation to German judges essentially handing down harsher sentences based on a die roll, which was kind of terrifying. There's so many interesting concepts in here. One thing that I found that was accidentally very apropos is, is you stated that our, our expectations excessively influence how we perceive events. Immediately what came to mind was the shootings of unarmed black men from police because of the expectations based on media, based on maybe things that have happened to them in their line of work that are exacerbating this problem. Do you see that pattern? Absolutely. Well? The work I've done on expectation is mostly around placebo for pain, when people expect the medication to be more helpful, it does become more helpful. When people pay more for medication, it's better. When people think the beer is better or the wine, it's, it's better. But there's all kinds of work on eyewitness testimony, where you put, people in a, you put people in a room and they observe a big screen movie of some shooting. And, and they don't know that there's going to be a shooting and just something happened. And then there's a shooting and people run. And then you take them out and you say, what happened? And most people see the black guy as the shooter. And it's because we don't have a full video. I mean, we have the experience that we're viewing life as a video, but we don't. We, we take snap shots of particular instances, and then we fill the gaps from our brain, not from reality. Right. We, we think we see with our eyes, but we really see a lot with our brain. And we think we experience the world with our senses, but a lot of it is done by what's called top-down, that we expect a particular thing and then we see what we expect to see. Because of that, by the way, this is not to forgive or to... But excuse, right, excuse, any behavior. But if somebody is making a movement and you think of them as a dancer or you think of them as somebody who might have a gun, you're going to look at that movement in very different ways. You right. might describe even things like the speed of the movement. You might describe the direction of the movement. We're trying, our brain has an incredible capacity of trying to predict the future all the time and to see whether our predictions are correct. Right. So you have a sense of what reality is. You're trying to predict what it is. You're not predicting all possible futures. You're right. predicting one particular future. And then you see whether what you're predicting is actually coming into reality. So you get a lot of self-confirming evidence just because that's what you look for, which doesn't excuse prejudice. But it actually says how important it is to eliminate, yeah. right? Because the moment you have prejudice, there's really not much you can do about it. I mean, it's very hard if you have prejudice at the moment not to have different interpretations of reality. And so we as humans constantly trying to predict that future or that outcome of the future action or something like this is always influenced by our prejudice how do we do as humans as a whole when we try to predict things? Are we generally good or are we generally wrong? Well, there's a lot of things that we get that we get wrong in predictions. In most cases, it's not too bad, right? Because I can say, you know, where do I predict you will walk or what do I predict you will say and, and so on. And if it doesn't fit, that's okay. Yeah, the consequences right? are minimal. Because if I all of a sudden have a device that can kill you, 
I'm looking at how you lean toward me as an aggressive right. mood rather than you're trying to tie your shoe. Now there's a lot of, a lot of risk. The state, so it depends on the stakes, right? And, and, and here's the worst thing is that the fact that those things are on people's mind all the time actually contribute to the expectation. Sure. With the media and this thing becoming more common, a lot of people were asking, is this a new epidemic or are we just shedding light on something that's been there the whole time? And the answer is probably it's a little bit of both. But the expectations that somebody's going to be a violent person, it's not coincidental that they happen to look exactly like these other people that had found themselves in the exact same situations over the past few months, past yeah. few years. Yeah, it's an incredibly sad, self-reinforcing social phenomenon. Tell us about the new book. Tell us about motivation and payoff. I've done lots of different types of work. Part of the thing that we actually don't know a lot about, the body of academic knowledge is not that large about, is about motivation at the workplace. And the reason for that is that it's just really hard to do. So I can sell some stuff, I can give people painkillers, I can change the prices of the painkillers, I can get people to steal some money from me. But what is really hard to do is to basically change people's bonuses for six months and see what happens, or to give people large bonuses. Like we gave people a five months bonus in one, wow. in one experiment, so they could make a tremendous amount of money. This body of work is actually, I think, took advantage of some of the early success we had because all of a sudden companies were willing to work with us, right? So, <laughs> sure. so I couldn't do things like this without- 10 years ago, right. Without Intel and Microsoft and you know, big companies allowing us to run experiments on employees and getting them to have real bonuses and different amounts and different incentive structure. What's so amazing about motivation is that we had this incredible capacity to be motivated by things. I mean, you look at this and you say, people are motivated by the way we help other people and by our sense of progress and by pride and by achievement. And if you just wrote the equation for motivation, it would include a lot and lots of things. Mostly, we don't think of any of this. Sometimes we have an intuition about some of them, but we don't think very deeply about motivation. Mostly we think about something like, oh, let's just pay people. Now, paying people is fine. I have nothing against uh, paying people, but it doesn't always work. It doesn't always work well. It can sometimes backfire. You can pay something, but some payment methods actually decrease motivation, run increasing. And the thing about motivation, I think of it like the perpetual motion machine. So in physics, people look for this energy machine that keeps on working and working and working. All right. Motivation is one of those things that if we understand it, everybody benefits. So if you work for me and you're more motivated, I benefit and you benefit. Right. You enjoy yeah. work more and I uh, get more value out right. of it. Right. It's not, it's not a zero-sum game. There's like the pie can become larger. So what I'm hoping is that people will take a, a deeper look at motivation. They will think about all of the elements that I try to describe in terms of meaning and sense of completion, identity, and so on, and try to figure out and how do we expand the pie? How do we get everybody to benefit from this? And some of the conclusions are really, really interesting. People are nearly twice as productive when their work has meaning, and almost everyone underestimates that effect. 2x is a, an enormous multiplier by any standard. Imagine if yeah. all of your team members were twice as productive and it didn't necessarily require a doubling of their salary. I mean, this is an economically game-changing. That's right. And this was in a production setting where you can actually measure what people do. You know, there's some jobs like your job, still harder to measure productivity. But there are other things. And there are the things that we should be doing and we don't do. But then there's also the things that we do and we should do. <laughs> so it's actually quite sad to see how many motivation 
choking behaviors we have. 360 evaluation, sometimes bonuses. You know, I, there was a big consulting company I talked to about their bonuses. And I said, you know, I would love to do a study with you about bonuses and well-being and how much bonus people get, what they expect to get, how it works. And the CEO told me that bonus season is the most miserable season in a company. Why? He said, everybody just concerned all the time thinking about what will their bonus, what will be their <sighs> bonus. Because it's not just the amount of money, it's also an evaluation and it's a judgment mm. and so on. And he said, I don't want to draw any more attention to bonuses. And I said, look, the whole reason you have bonuses is to draw attention to it, Yeah, right? It's I mean, a recruiting, to, it's a but, retention. But you, know, you want people to think about the bonus and work hard and so on. If you tell me that the fact that you have bonuses is causing people to be less happy, then shouldn't you question right. bonuses to start with? Yeah. The whole idea of bonus is that you want people to behave a certain way. You put a big pile of money in that direction. People would work in that direction. But if all you do is to get people to be distracted because they keep on thinking, will I make it? Will I not? What will Joe make? How much am I? Right. Where do What's I fall the in the hierarchy? Yeah. Is this motivating? Because if nothing else, they're spending lots of time on this activity. Yeah, one of the uh, the executive compensation studies, I, I guess, that you'd run these experiments was they experimented with making their compensation totally transparent. And the theory was, all right, if we publish all of this information for these executives, there's going to be sort of a shrinking of this because there's going to be an element of shame attached to it. But what happened instead was everybody got brutally competitive now that they could see each other's salaries and executive compensation ended up going up. Going up, yeah. Because what happened was they did not compare themselves to the employees within the company. They compared themselves to the other friends, CEOs at other companies. Right, people that they, they thought felt, were on their level. Yeah. I met this guy. He was in charge of compensation in a big bank. I gave a talk on compensation and relativity and comparison. And he said, you know, now that you tell me about this, he said, I just realized that we have a database where the salaries for everybody is available. Oh, wow. And he said, if that database got leaked, probably everybody but the person at the top would be upset. Would be unhappy, yeah. Because everybody thinks they're a little better than the idiot, the other idiot. Of course, and, yeah. And why is the other idiot paying, getting paid more? There was a company I visited that had a 16-point rating approach to their employees, and it was in quarter of percent. And it translated into a bonus, and the total bonus was something like $4,000. So if you had 16 points, you could get $4,000. But, you know, the jump between... 14.25 to 14.5 was not a big right, financial right, sure. issue, right? And people were unbelievably upset over a quarter of a point difference. Why? Oh, man. Because you're judging me. Hierarchy. Yeah. You're judging me. Like, if you got 14 and a half and I got 14 point and a quarter, like, right. why, why are you better than me? Like, it's exactly it, yeah. It says you're better than me objectively on this scale. That's right. And I cannot have that. That's right. So we can think about all the ways in which we could increase motivation. But the easier one is to first say, let's not do the things that kill motivation. And that should be kind of step one is let's look carefully about what we're doing and make sure we don't do the bad things. Why aren't we good at predicting our own motivations or our own motivation killers? So there's actually lots of things that come with it. But one of the things is that the experience of flow or the experience of joy at work is a very different experience than a thoughtful experience about what motivates us, right? What you're trying to do is you're trying to think about this engaged process. And this engaged process is actually about not thinking about it, right? The engaged process is about saying, I love what I'm doing. 
I'm really enjoying it. I'm in the flow. I don't want this to stop. When you reason about that, we don't understand what that includes. So we say, oh, I need more money. But the fact is that for you to be fully engrossed in what you're doing and derive joy at the moment, it actually means not thinking about work. But when you think about work, you think about work, so you're kind of in a different state of mind, right? right? So right it's, sure. It's as if you're trying to, when you're awake, it's very hard to predict what's happening when you're asleep, and when you're asleep, it's hard to predict when you're awake. We engage this process of trying to deliberately thinking about what's going on in a state that is so different from the state that we're in that we don't have good intuition about that. Right. So all we can look at are patterns like, well, I know when I go to this place and I'm hungry, I, I order too many things. But that's kind of as advanced as we get. That's right. And we don't notice a lot of the nuances as well, right? So when you say, how much do you order? We have a record of this. But when you say motivation also varies and fluctuates and we don't have enough experience over it, like ordering food, you order multiple times, you have experience. But with motivation, you would need to have lots of variations. So we also don't have lots of experience. You know, if you think about it, to get good understanding of motivation, you have to try lots of different workplaces over a very long time yeah. and then be able to attribute how motivated you were to this condition. So through but this all is of your why, human bias as well, right? And this good is luck. why research is so good, right? Because with research, you say, I don't expect you as individuals to collect all this data. I, I know you used to do lots of things on dating. Dating is one of the things people have terrible intuitions. Yes, of because course. Because how many people have you dated? I mean, if you've dated a lot, it's a dozen. Yeah. I mean, how many people have you lived with for a prolonged period of sure. time? Very, very few. Very few. How would you develop an intuition about what works well or not? You would have to date lots of people, try different approaches, see what works and doesn't work. We don't have that luxury. Even if you were able to do that for yourself, which is what we endeavored to do at The Art of Charm, you then have to go, here's what's going to work for you based on my experience. First, you have to get decades and decades of experience, and then you have to show what's going to work for other people, and that's just as hard. Yeah. And if you think about compensation or motivation in the workplace, these experiments are just very hard. They take lots of time. They require lots of effort. It's very hard to do individually. And, you know, every company has an ideology about what compensation sure. should be like and what motivation. And it's not just about companies. It's about organizations and families. Everything has the notion of motivation. And everybody has ideas about it. But when you ask people, like, how sure are you that your ideas are, are working and there's any evidence for this, nobody does. Dan, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure you deliver? I think that we used to think that the big mysteries of life is the you know what's in the stars and maybe microbiology. And of course, these are big mysteries. But for me, I think that the human mystery is wonderful. And even though it's just in front of us, there's so much we don't know. We, we drink coffee every day. The truth is there's lots of things we don't understand about coffee. We use money every day. Lots of things we don't understand about it. We try to motivate people every day and we don't still understand what it is. And, and the process of social science in which we try different things and try to measure objectively what's going on and attributing and trying to improve things over time, I think is a wonderful process. So when people read or listen or think about those topics, I think the, the real benefit is to say, what can I take for my life? What are the things about my life that I'm not observing? Can I be a bit better in observing my own life? Can I try to implement something? And then hopefully also, can I try to experiment with something? Is there something I would like to try out in a few different ways and see what leads to a better outcome. Thanks so much, Dan. My pleasure. 
Really interesting episode today. Been waiting to have Dan on the show for a long time. Definitely check out his books. We're going to link to a bunch of those in the show notes, including Payoff, his latest book on motivation. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Dan on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as other resources mentioned on the show. You can tap the album art in the podcast player on your phone to see the show notes for this episode. We'll link to those show notes right on your phone. I'm also on Twitter at The Art of Charm, and it's a great way to get a hold of me, producer Jason, or anything else having to do with the show. Boot camps are live programs. We run them every week, but they fill up real fast. Check them out, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. Of course, that is the best way to learn from us live and direct here. And I also want to encourage you to join our AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. Or if you're here in the States, you can text charmed, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. That challenge is about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier in the show. And I got regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward. I do those every week and it'll make you a better networker, a better connector and a better thinker. That's the art of slash challenge or text charmed in the U S to three, three, four, four, four. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the podcast, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.